0: I presume I'm here. That is you. Uh, we got sparkling water gazooto. Yeah, yeah, funny. great, but, great.
1: Um, they did one of the best comedy sets I've ever seen. It was mm-hmm. really, really, you know, no, no holds barred, nothing off the table, which, of course, how can you be funny if there's things you can't talk about? Yeah. All that comedians ever do is talk about things they're not supposed to talk about.
2: Yeah, I mean, the nature of comedy is to talk about the stuff you're not supposed to. Yeah, definitely. That's the darkness, that's the funny bits. Like, that's yeah. where... It's like when you're a kid at school You're like oh, We're not supposed to say this right man? Yeah that's, Isn't that the function I
0: kind of The jester was sort of The important part of the court I thought Yeah, yeah, yeah to undermine someone, He was the so. only
1: one That could tell the truth That's how you know a tyrant man mm-hmm. a Tyrant can't stand his own jester Yeah right And yeah. so when you see people I think there's two marks Of tyranny right now <laughs> People who hate comedians People who hate automobiles <laughs> right. like, Really it's like man, That's a line of war for me It's like really? Keep your hands off my fucking car Yeah right prick uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. well, it, you think about what a car stands for. It's like radical autonomy and privacy, right? Right. And that's the problem, too, with the centralized control systems on cars now. You know, we'll help you out with your on-star. It's like, yeah, you'll govern where I can drive. You'll govern how fast I can drive. You'll end up bloody well reporting me if I exceed 55 and destroy uh-huh. the planet. No, I really don't like those centralized control systems at all. I think they're a big mistake because as soon as they're put in, it's like those centralized control systems for people's home heating like, <laughs> well we'll help you save bill save on your bill
2: until, you know, until you're you looking can't further use your down heat. the road of where, where they're going with it like so for example when social media started it was the place to upload pictures yeah. but now it's a way to try and influence how we feel about things
1: sure well it's the same with digital currency it's like we're make a merit, we'll make a national oh. digital currency and oh. then we'll tax everything that you purchase that we think has a carbon load. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, you can just bloody well be sure that the the behind-the-scenes globalists are just rubbing their hands about that. Mm. So can you imagine what would happen if the government could track everything you bought? Uh Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's a real...
2: It's their dream, though, isn't it? Yeah, well, they'll do it for our own good. Uh, Yeah, it's amazing how many uh, people can get away with things when that's the illusion behind the message. That's for sure. Yeah, I... I remember feeling when we did the lockdowns and that just feeling like cuz I'm I'm I feel like I'm not as controllable as the average yeah, guy. Yeah, you don't
1: you don't look like yeah. kind of
2: lockdown guy. No, I'm give not. it a try, see I, what happens. I definitely <laughs> felt like a, a a caged animal uh for a bit there. And I'm actually quite a homebody, so I, you would have thought I would have uh, pissed it as we say in the UK. Yeah. Uh but I, it was just the outrage within me like why are more people not pissed off outraged about the fact that we're being told it's for our own good yeah. and don't yeah. get me wrong that may well have been the case like I was open yeah. to, but, but I don't think there doesn't seem to be any evidence that it was helpful there was all. no proof of anything offered there was no and if you dare to raise your head up and go yeah I got a couple of questions about this it's like you want to you want people to die you know yeah. and and that's that is how they seem to control us whether it be with comedy whether it be with whatever th- that is always the message of well this is for your own good and if you and challenge it and then the
1: weaponization it, of guilt mm, you right. bet, the uh, the the radical types are so good at weaponizing guilt mm. people have got to get over that and they, they position not themselves
2: as like the um the victim mm-hmm. and that you are the perpetrator yeah. every time and when we talked about comedy before just as you were sitting down it I, something else sprung to mind it was like how people are always um, fake outraged you know what I mean yeah. to try and take you down uh, and you've probably, you've dealt with that a lot yeah
1: quite a lot the, uh, yeah you might say
2: the uh, <laughs> social justice warriors and whatnot. Uh, yeah. And what, what, else, is it, um, what is the thing that I always get annoyed by? What do they call it? When virtue signaling. Virtue signaling and stuff like that, yeah. Like, yeah,
1: we can talk about all of that today. That'd be just fine. Yeah, yeah. well it's uh, the virtue signaling thing that can use a fair bit of unpacking because there's a real technical reason that occurs. And um, it, does pose, it poses a continual threat to the integrity of, of society at large. It's narcissists And Machiavellian psychopaths they call that the dark triad those people are very very good at uh, sending up camouflage that makes them look like they're useful and productive right and that's actually their strategy you see that a lot with these guys that are like women's rights advocates and the go to the the protests that often women where women often predominate it's like oh yeah you're here on the women's side are you Uh Uh-huh. I know what sort of character you are. What what sort of character (laughs) is that, though? That's that's a good question. Predator. Right. Like a real predator. It's like, oh, I'm on your side, you know, and maybe you'll climb into bed with me. Yeah. It's very
0: difficult to call that out in a sense though, isn't it? Because how do you, I don't know.
2: They're, they're the white knight in shining armor in that instance. Right. If you're, because you had an attack video done on you in a similar sense. So what is that? Why, why do you think people do that? To
1: elevate themselves falsely in the status hierarchy mm-hmm. so that they're more attractive to, mm. well, to women, but also so that they have a position among men that they don't deserve Mm. instead of earning it right they just fake it Mm. it's all manipulation and they call the people who are good at that are part of the dark triad of personality traits machiavellian psychopathic and narcissistic and so that's it's a form of camouflage fakery Mm -hmm. so it's like a guy who will you know dress above his stature economically now that's a much less toxic example of it because that can be aspirational too right Mm -hmm. he's trying to look better so he can clue in but um, the the pickup artist types for example they tell their advocates to peacock to dress above their status level and the reason they do that is because then they can signal competence that they don't have right because your your style of dress is a marker of your social status and there's for men and for women. There's lots of different ways of doing that because it depends on which hierarchy you want to be placed properly in. But you signal with your dress your status. Mm -hmm. And so then you can falsely signal. And you do that so that people are more impressed with you than you deserve. And so it's a cheap way to gain reputation. And there isn't anything more important to people than reputation. And so really that virtue signaling is false reputation signaling. And it's a form of deception. It's a deep form of deception. And social media enables it like
2: mad. Uh, because the masses are stupid, in my opinion, a lot of the time, and they just fall for it. They don't well, say-
1: it's a funny thing. It's because it, it is a kind of willful blindness, and sometimes it's a kind of ignorance. But once you have a society that's basically based on trust, and our societies are basically based on trust, mm-hmm. then people can exploit that trust, right? They can act as if they're trustworthy agents, honest agents and gain the access and opportunities that you could gain reasonably if you were honest but you can do it in a completely deceptive way and i really do think the social media networks in particular have massively expanded that problem because you, you as a as a narcissistic and predatory outsider your voice can be magnified like mad all this trolling behavior on Mm-hmm. on 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 social media comment sections in particular it's so pathological <laughs> it's like well you know what it's like and you guys have experienced this
2: absolutely people
1: will say things in the comment section on youtube that would absolutely 100 percent, get them punched instantly if they ever said it to your face oh yeah and i mean that's, yeah yeah that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah.
0: Pre- yeah yeah i'm oh, pretty yeah. good at yeah.
1: yeah 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 well it's so interesting eh? because if they were face to face with you
2: yeah exactly they
1: wouldn't dare yeah. utter a word like that but as soon as you put people Especially people who can't control themselves and who are resentful. As soon as you put them behind a wall, in some sense, mm-hmm. they can, well, they can say whatever they want to whoever they want and get away with
2: it. I think deal. I've been targeted a little bit more because of kind of how I big guy, all of all of that. You stuff. Bet. Uh, I think people get a bit of a, a thrill out of almost like poking the beast of course they do yeah like shouting at the line through the cage a little bit you know like it and yeah. I, I especially think, I think yeah. that's made me more of a target without a doubt in the last sort of few years Yeah,
1: yeah. they do the same thing to Dan Crenshaw he's a congressman in, in Washington he's a tough guy he was oh. in Afghanistan he lost an eye in combat like oh. Dan's a tough guy he was a Navy SEAL oh. and the controls come after him like mad it's like oh there's a war hero poke 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 yeah. it's like yeah poke him in person and yeah. see what the hell happens, but no, no, it's really, it's, it's really not good. Very bitchy sort of yeah. way of living yeah. your life, oh God, isn't it? It's so sad. Uh-huh. We, um, I, I don't th- presume we're on, are we? No, we are. Yeah, oh, we are. So <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah. It's all good. <laughs> no, it's but good. If you want fine. anything cut out, then you no, want no, to no, into, no, yeah. no, no. That's fine. I um, mean,
2: I, I kind of feel like you don't need an introduction with all due respect, uh, Jordan. You are uh, probably the most viewed podcast guest in history at this point. God, that's a terrifying thought. That's quite amazing. I well done to you. You know, and you've done that on content not on uh, not on on virtue signaling well you know you've done it on to me what what content is supposed to be about which is quality and and you know n- not that everyone should agree all the time and i'm sure i mean i might not have agreed with everything you've said but you're bringing opinions and important information to the table rather than just uh bubble gum for the people out there
1: who, yeah well we're trying real hard in not to be a content mill, you know. And mm. I have this new deal with Daily Wire Plus, mm-hmm. which seems to be going very well. And they're more corporate than me because I'm just me and I have some people around me, obviously. Mm-hmm. But there's always a tendency once something gets established, you know, and it and the, and gets to be a bit of a schedule behind it as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then maybe, say, a corporate uh, uh, expectation. You can easily get pulled into the content mill Thought process: We have to produce something for of this length for this time. It's Mm -hmm. like it's very, very hard to avoid that. One of the things that's so nice about YouTube because it's it doesn't have to be done exactly to a schedule and there's no (laughs) bandwidth limitation is you don't have to be dragged into the content mill process. Now I went to a lot of television interviews, um, much less in the last few years. But when I started to become more popular and. It was always it was so interesting going into TV studios because I always felt like a, a product. And that's how the interviewers generally treated me, too. Yeah. And they were often sound bites, a couple of minutes, right? You're yeah. just there to fill a gap. But that is what you were there for uh-huh. because it was a maw that had to be fed constantly, especially with broadcast TV because they had, they had to fill all the time. And so what they filled it with, in some sense, became subordinate to the fact that it needed to be filled. And that's partly what accounted for the falseness of legacy media because, well, it turned into a content mill, And you could see that happening with comedians too. You know, you'd get some edgy comic and then they'd get hired to write a sitcom. And then the sitcom would be pretty good, but then they had to produce the damn half an hour every week for like five years. And man, that's a lot of content. And so it kind of it tended to kill the goose that laid the golden egg. I mean, some, some series managed that really effectively. The Simpsons was pretty damn good for about 15 years, mm. which is a hell of a run. And then not even too bad after that. Yeah. Um, but it seems that it's kind of run its its course recently. I've watched some recent years and it's starting to be a parody of The Simpsons instead of The Simpsons, you know. It's, it's so. a little
0: bit like, um, actually he's another Canadian, Marshall McLuhan said like, um, yeah. medium is the message. Yeah. People just get put into the medium and they just then become subject to it almost.
1: Yeah, well that, yeah, that was really McLuhan's point was that, Just when a new technology arises, don't be thinking that, first of all, that you understand the technology or that it's merely a replacement for the previous technology. I I see this with legacy media companies that try to use YouTube. CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, is a good example. They just can't get any traction at all on YouTube. And the reason for that is they think YouTube is just TV except not as good. So, first of all, they have contempt for their audience, right? It's like, oh, YouTube, that's for, you know, trolls and, and ne'er-do-wells, misogynists and bigots and racists and people on the fringe like Joe Rogan on the fringe, you know, because they are foolish enough to think that someone like Rogan is on the fringe, which mm-hmm. I think is really funny. And so when CBC started to put, them, put their content, like news clips, for example, on YouTube, they put up 10 minutes of content with three minutes of ads at the beginning, three minutes, three minutes, and you couldn't skip them. Mm -hmm. And then they disable comments. It's like, you guys don't understand this medium at all. It's like you get one ad, 15 seconds long, people have to be able to skip it and you don't get to disable comments. It's like, Mm -hmm. who do you think you are? Well, we're CBC. It's like, yeah, well that's why you have like no viewers Mm -hmm. because you roundly deserve it.
2: But we are seeing those mainstream broadcasters, uh, even in the UK, which I feel is behind America, they're pivoting and they're learning quickly like, okay, this is how we have to control people from this side of things. Now we have to like tap into this new generation. Like we've got sports companies ripping off our concepts, for example, that are run by billionaires. And and even, um, I think the thing that really surprised me recently was the royal family, uh, the funeral of the queen. I thought, no pun intended, but that whole thing was dead and buried. I thought that uh, Mm -hmm. it was a a thing that my generation would not necessarily care about be impacted by um, because they are so behind the times and they are so irrelevant to our day-to-day lives in in the UK. And yet the amount of people online who were sharing pictures of the queen and all of that. And I was like, if I said to these people, what 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 did she do that was so great that impacted your life in any way? Not a clue, but, but people just go with the flow. And that's the sort of thing that is surprising about well, this generation. A, I think
1: there was a buried value in the Queen mm. that, that wasn't as evident a month ago, let's say, as it is now. You know, if, so one of the tenets of psychoanalytic idea, uh, let's say, both from the Freudian and the Jungian perspective is that there's a a pull towards the missing opposite. And so imagine a culture is devoid of some sense that they actually need. So for example, our culture is pretty devoid of a sense that responsibility is the counterpart of rights. So everybody clamors about rights, but hardly anybody talks about responsibility. And that doesn't work out because rights, the rights of someone else are everyone else's responsibility. Mm. So you can't have, rights without responsibility so if you only talk about rights half the conversation is missing and the queen she's a very interesting person because she was very discreet she very rarely shared her opinions and so that's that's definitely missing in our culture she was very dutiful Mm -hmm. she had celebrity thrust upon her because well she shouldn't there was no reason for her to assume when she was young that she was ever going to be queen and because she wasn't close enough in the succession line for that to be likely and then it happened anyways and then she's also been there for a very long time which is interesting in a culture that values the short term and she also managed to keep her family together now of course the family was fractious but you know like find a family that isn't fractious good luck with that and so and then she also stood for tradition and the british tradition and she also stood for the english speaking people and the Commonwealth and there's a That's of course that's all being attacked on grounds of colonialism, etc. And exploitation but like there's a genuine gold core to the English Enterprise, especially with regard to such things as common law and the and individual rights and the dignity of the human being that shouldn't be thrown out along with the criticism and so when the Queen died People felt a loss of something they didn't even really know was there, mm-hmm. and that loss was the call towards these more modest and responsible virtues that she embodied. Can I, can I, just out of interest, then? Because I understand, I think I understand that I'm not a monarchist,
0: but I understand what people believe she embodied. Yeah. I guess on a counterpoint to that, but respectfully, yeah, her son also did something that was quite horrific, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And she abused that power to protect him, or at least mm. it feels like it was an abuse of that power. Mm-hmm.
2: So she definitely used her sway in the media to protect them, and, I, and yeah, I, and, and she and was very smart with the media. What, it, what are it,
0: you referring to specifically? Um, so Andrew, and yeah. you know, obviously, we can't put too fine a point on that because of uh, people are quite litigious. But you know, we know roughly what the events were that happened there, and we know that people were paid. We know that people were paid to be either be quiet or. You know, not to get too deep into the story and not yep. to go to court and we know he's not necessarily welcome in America without the FBI waiting for him to get off the plane with that I guess I, I respect what people f- believe she represents and I'm, yep. I guess I'm quite reverent of what, what she represents yep. but also there was a, a sheer abuse of power there that goes yeah, well, well beyond what well, anyone else well,
1: you know, do you know that, what I mean by... yeah of course well look so part of what's happening on our society at the moment that's tearing it apart is um, constant accusations of the abuse of power And so there's a doctrine that's come out of postmodernism, and it's kind of unholy alliance with Marxism. And the doctrine is something like all motivation can be traced to power. That's a very toxic doctrine. The doctrine that all motivation can be traced to power. So let me outline that a little bit. So a lot of people think that there's a debate about who should be allowed to speak in our society, right? So we might think about that as the free speech debate and we might think about cancel culture as... The attempt to stop certain people from exercising their right to free speech But that is not what the debate is about. That's only the paint on the surface of a very thick wall Let's say because the actual debate is more like this The postmodern types especially if they have a Marxist tilt and they almost always do their critique was much deeper than that their critique was that the idea of free speech itself is a lie And it was a lie that was created by the powerful to justify their exploitation by pretending that they valued free expression and the dignity of individuals. And so even though it sounds like a profound and positive uh, proposition, the idea that people have the right to free speech, it was nothing but a mask for power. And so when people are cancelled on campus by this system of ideas, because it's really a system of ideas, in some sense, that cancels them. The reason they're cancelled is because... So here's why you and I are talking according to this doctrine. You have a following. It, as a consequence of that following, you've accrued a certain amount of power. You can bring me in here as a uh, tool, let's say, to ratchet yourself up the status hierarchy. You can act like we're sharing information in a way that might be designed to enlighten both of us and our readers or our listeners. But in reality all you're doing is trying to elevate yourself up the status hierarchy and if you don't know that you're just ignorant and if you're and, and blind and you're even more dangerous than you would be if you were conscious of your true motivations and so it's all about power. Now that's just not true. It's not all about power and in fact if you try to govern your relationships based on power, your true relationships, you will fail. Mm-hmm. So imagine that you you your wife let's say, You're going to just use power to to interact with her well try it and see what happens Mm -hmm. you know you're going to be she's going to be miserable and she's going to be resentful Mm -hmm. for sure and maybe she's got more power than you when push comes to shove who the hell knows women aren't that easy to oppress and so they have their own bag of tricks that's for sure and so (sighs) but at minimum you're going to be setting yourself up for a loveless relationship based on mutual suspicion and then imagine you tried to use power on your kids. Well, now and then you might have to use discipline. You might have to lay out the game rules, which isn't the same as like constraining them with oppression. And, but if your fundamental relationship with your kids is one of dominance, you're just a tyrant. And then if you try using that on your friends, well, first of all, you won't have any friends. The best you'll ever manage is henchmen, and they'll only be around you because they think they can get something out of your power. So they're the worst kind of friend because they're not even confident enough bullies to be bullies on their own. They have to hide behind another bully and be sub-bullies, and that's a dismal outcome. And then if you use power in your business relationships, it's like no one's gonna be aligned with you, and the first time you make a mistake, and, and you show any sign of weakness, your so-called business associates that you've just dominated because you have the power, they're just gonna stab you in the back and leave. So it's a, it's a preposterous theory. It doesn't even work for chimpanzees. So the, the best work that's been done on chimps so far has been done by Franz De Waal be a very interesting guest by the way he's very smart dutch Mm -hmm. primatologist if you have his number yeah i could connect you um dewall has been studying chimpanzees for three decades Mm -hmm. and he's written a series of books about the emergence of proto-morality in chimpanzees Mm -hmm. now chimps have to live in a social group and for decades and they have you might as well call them friendships um, because that's the closest analog and they have to maintain those friendships and they can't maintain them by dominance because well then obviously it's not a friendship they have to maintain it by mutual grooming and caretaking and so what Dewall has shown is that the alpha chimp so you think of the alpha chimp as the roughest toughest chimp in the troop you know he's banging on sticks and threatening everybody and he clambers his way up the hierarchy just like the Marxists would assume and he establishes sexual superiority and propagates his genes and the truth of the matter is That's better than being weak and useless and and dying, but it's not nearly as good as being genuinely reciprocal. And so what DeWall has shown is that sometimes the Alpha Chimp male is the smallest male in the troop. So that's pretty damn interesting. Mm -hmm. But more to the point, the Alpha Chimp is the most reciprocal member of the entire troop. So he's keeping track of his social relations. He's grooming his friends. They're interacting constantly like he's maintaining social relationships like mad. And there's two advantages to that, apart from the fact that he attains a certain degree of a reverence, let's say an authority mm-hmm. and, and some preferential sexual access. So it's a good biological strategy. The troop is oft also more stable emotionally, partly because it's not ruled by a tyrant, let's say, who's always disrupting things, but the alpha who's reciprocal also can have a long reign. Because if you're one of those chimps that use manipulation and power to climb up the hierarchy, as soon as you show a sign of weakness, two of the males that you've oppressed will gang together, which chimps are very good at, and tear you into bits and so DeWall has written very frightening accounts, very graphic accounts of these, like, re- revolutions against tyranny and chimp groups. And so the people who claim that power is the only motivation, they don't have a leg to stand on. It's just not true. And there's one, one, more, th- one more thing that goes along with that. Two more things. One is, if you think power is the only motivation, that's your whole theory, then you're justified in using power at every at every step, because there's nothing but power. So, why not use power? And so, it's a confession more than an accusation. And second, and this is sort of germane to your criticism of the Queen when systems deteriorate, power emerges as a fundamental motivation. And so, part of the reason the Marxists and the postmodernists can be so attractive in their critique is because power does corrupt. And so whenever you look at any enterprise, social enterprise, any family structure, even any relationship someone has with themselves, you can say, well, look, to some degree, you're corrupted by misuse of power. And, and sometimes that can go way out of control, right, and be the dominant, uh, the dominant phenomenon that happens in totalitarian states. And you say, well, it's all about power. Well, it is when things get entirely corrupted. But that's a whole different proposition than everything's based on power. It's more like, well, hold it. Everything corrupt is based on power. But but not everything is corrupt. And so, so now if you look at the monarchy, well, right. then you think, okay, well, how do you separate the wheat from the chaff, right? How do you give the institution its due? You have the same problem with the British Empire, let's say, or with any... Expansive political enterprise. It's like, well, it's done some good. What's the good? And then it's abused its power. Well, how do we decide what's good and maintain that and 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 value it? And how do we discern what's a misuse of power and criticize it properly and dispense with it? You're a great Very podcast difficult. in this sense.
0: That was my follow-up question, and you basically just answered your own question. But I guess that
1: is that is. Uh, are you acknowledging in a sense then that there is a sense an element of corruption around the queen there's an element of corruption around every everyone who isn't you know what would you say walking hand in hand with god in the garden of eden like right look there's an old there's a mythological trope that's very useful in understanding this i presume that most of the people watching and listening have watched the lion king the lion king has a very very solid narrative structure it's a very smart movie like many of the disney movies and people criticize me because I'm so interested in Disney movies, but I'm interested in anything that many, 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 many people watch for a long time because, Mm. well, what's going on there? Why is that so attractive? And often a movie's attractive because it gets the story right and the characters right, whatever that means. Well, The Lion King was a very, very successful animated movie, one of the most successful movies of all time.
2: Can I just, for those who can't remember everything the light touches is our kingdom right yeah, just well, okay, so, so what so what, what that anytime. means i can tell
1: you exactly what that means huh? that that's a brilliant line mm. and that's also and notice i used the word brilliant mm. and brilliant is associated with the idea of the light okay so now the, when the light touches something and you see it then you establish a relationship with the thing that you see because now you start to understand it and the more lit up something is the more you you can understand it and explore it And so when you shine a light into dark crevices, then let's say, then you start to see what's in the dark crevices. And if you go around your apartment building, let's say, and you pay attention to every nook and cranny, you start to, it starts to become yours in a very fundamental way. And so you could say, well, light is equivalent to consciousness. That's a good way of thinking about it. Now, why? Well, we're very visual creatures, human beings. Our brains are organized on vision. Most animals are Organized on smell by the way, but not us. We're organized on vision Mm -hmm. a huge part of our cortical activity is Devoted to to sight and so we think of sight as enlightenment light Mm -hmm. We think of it as illumination Right when we bring something into the light we improve it and so we associate the day with consciousness and illumination and enlightenment and so if you attend to something by shining a light on it, then it becomes yours and so your kingdom is actually everything that the light of your consciousness has shone on. And all that's encapsulated in that statement. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's stuck in your imagination. <laughs> yeah, you remember he's up, he's up with his son on yeah. a, on a yeah. mountain, right, on a cliff. And yeah. so now think about that. That means he can see a long way. And then he sees this, this circle of the world mm-hmm. and the light shining on it. And he says, everything the light shines on is our kingdom. Mm-hmm. And then that also implies that, and he says that next, that outside the light, there's another kingdom. And that's the kingdom of darkness. Mm-hmm. And that's the place that hasn't been explored. And if you remember in the movie, that's where that's where the fascists are mm-hmm. and the hyenas, and the hyenas are predatory. Mm-hmm. And so when Simba goes out past the domain of the light, he enters the unknown and he enters this, the underworld, the demonic underworld, and that's Scar. Now back to Scar. Okay, so so Simba has Mustafa as his father. And Mustafa's the positive aspect of the of the patriarchy. And he's wise and he's tough. He's got a set face, he's no pushover. But he has an evil brother, and that's Scar. And Scar has been scarred, and that's why he's resentful, right? He's a victim. And and he feel he's a victim because his brother gets all the attention, like Cain in relationship to Abel, and he's a victim because for some reason, we don't quite he's understand. Smaller, he's small, he's but the he's alpha. intellectual too, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So he's got the pri- he's got Luciferian pr- he's got the Luciferian pride in intellect. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy Irons, who's that character, played that extremely well with that kind of unctuous voice that was kind of uh, like a
2: snaky, droning. So. Yeah,
1: well, and also uh, contemptuous mm-hmm. and and yeah. presumptuous and narcissistic. He did a lovely job of that. And so now you might say, well, why does the king have an evil uncle or an evil brother? Well, the, the answer is, this is the mythological answer, is that, well, the king always has an evil brother, always. And the reason for that is, if the king is the emblem of the state, which or even of the stable state of being, because you can think about it psychologically or sociologically, he always has a counterpart. And the counterpart is the proclivity of that state to be overtaken by willful blindness, so failure to shine a light on things, Right? to turn your fate head away when you know you shouldn't, and also by this corrupt will to resentful power. Mm-hmm. And that's chronic. Now, the Marxist would say, and do in some real sense, there's nothing but scar. There's nothing but the evil uncle. It's like, that's a hell of a worldview. I can tell you in some real sense, it's akin on the Christian front to making the statement that the true ruler of reality is the satanic spirit. It's the same idea and that's a hell of a claim man to 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 literally speaking. And so but but it is the case that almost every institution and almost every person has a touch of the evil uncle as part of their structure. You know, there's no doubt that Prince Andrew. I mean, well, it uh, doesn't take us quite, back then, when you're little, yeah. well, then. Well, but everyone. So imagine imagine that to some degree you're not as good an advocate for yourself as you might be. I don't know? need to imagine that. Well, I'm, yeah, okay, no, so you know it. that. Yeah, okay, absolutely. so then imagine there's part of your character that's sort of set against you. Yeah. And it would be set against you because well, you might doubt whether life has any fundamental meaning and you might be annoyed and irritated because you've been hurt and betrayed in various ways and your development might have been stunted because you hit obstacles and you didn't explore them enough and so your way was barred and and so there's a part of your character that is set against you and you have to contend with that part and hopefully overcome it or integrate it, which is a better way of thinking about it. And then that's the same for... Your relationship with your wife, and then that's the same for your relationship with your kids, and it just scales all the way up. And then you can say, "Well, look, you're corrupt." And the truth of the matter is, well, you are to some degree, but the the to some degree is actually the crucial issue here. Absolutely, I guess that's
0: where my crit. We go back to the criticism I guess I made of the Queen in the first place. Um, it that, that's part of the problem with the discourse around it I guess at the moment or the conversation is if I criticise the Queen in the time when we're mourning the immediate reply is not the time yeah and yeah. but that's always the re- response with the queen and with andrew this isn't yeah. the time you know don't talk about it like this and so there never really seems to be a time but also at the same time when i do have a legitimate criticism people go well you're an anti-monarchist then i go well not necessarily i've just got a criticism yeah, well, of
1: what happens there well, so we can't have a nuanced reasonable well, that's conversation the thing. well people don't people don't really like nuance that much because <laughs> well, so well here's doesn't fit so, on a
2: tiktok unfortunately I,
1: I i had a conversation with a with, with a great physicist Roger Penrose and Penrose um, has this obsession with with tiling so he designs tiles and he's interested in the mathematics of tiling and and it's in some sense a strange interest and so but he's a genius and so whenever I see a genius and he has a strange interest I think that's probably related to his genius in some way because after all he's a genius and so I thought a lot about his obsession with tiling outside the building he works in at Oxford the the, the the land outside is covered with a tile that he designed that has certain mathematical properties that I don't know enough about to describe um, in detail. But I, I, I was very interested psychologically in the idea of tiling. So imagine that you have a surface, an uneven and rough surface that's very complicated like an uneven and rough surface is. It's extremely highly detailed, right? And it's got undulations and it's made out of dust and the dust is made out of, you know, Atoms at the finest level of resolution. Well, you can go even finer than that. It's very complicated any surface Now when you tile it you simplify it Right because each tile in some sense is homogeneous. That's sort of what makes it a tile. It's one piece So you take this thing that's extremely complex and you put a simpler Representation on top of it. And so one of the things I've learned about people is that we all tile the whole cosmos so you have a model of the entire universe now you think well how can you because what the hell do you know and the answer is you use really big tiles so imagine what you know about uh Serbia you know you you, maybe you know a lot about Serbia but I'm going to assume you don't my Uh, wife's from Kosovo so so I know okay so okay so but but then you think you know a fair bit it's like well maybe you could identify where it is located on a map. If you had a map, you probably couldn't draw. I, think the I map.
0: disagree with a few people about what Serbia is and isn't on a map. Okay, if okay, I'm okay, okay.
1: Okay. Well, th- that's also a problem. Ugh. But imagine you could probably point to Serbia on a map. But then I could say, well, could you draw that map without looking at a map? Could you draw a map of Europe accurately without looking at it? Now, maybe you could, but most people certainly can But they could. Re- but they could point to it. Mm-hmm. So imagine people have a representation of the whole world, but it's really, 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 really low resolution. It's sort of you can see this if you get people to do something like well do you know what a helicopter is it's like yes can you draw one Mm -hmm. so they draw it it looks like a three-year-old drew a helicopter it's like it's got rotors it's like four parts rotors ball stick ball that's a helicopter it's like no it's not especially not if it's a military helicopter i think Mm -hmm. you have to for a military helicopter to fly you need 35 hours of maintenance for every hour it's in the air and the reason for that is well, they're rocks, like they're a solid mm-hmm. piece of metal. You know, they just plummet. They don't fly. And keeping those things in the air is really complicated. And you have to know the helicopter in unbelievably great detail mm-hmm. in order to actually make it work. And so when you say you know what a helicopter is, you might say, well, what do you mean? And your answer is something like, Well, I know one well enough so that if I walk by it, it doesn't explode. Mm -hmm. It's something like that. And so your representation is good enough so that in your normal course of affairs, you can use it to navigate through the world. And that's how you adjudicate your knowledge. And so if you never go to Russia, you can have a really low resolution representation of Russia, and it Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. Now, the devil's in the details, let's say. You talked about a nuanced conversation. Well, let's say you're an environmentalist. that's what you say and that's claim to moral virtue and you say okay well what do you mean you're an environment well I think we should serve the planet it's like well what do you mean the planet and what do you think the big issue is well it's carbon it's like well is it really Um, what about overfishing what about uh, despeciation what about soil degradation what about the idea that if you made people richer they would become more environmental, environmentally conscious. And so maybe the best way to uh, clean <coughs> planet is by making the poor people rich, which by the way, seems to be the case, um, and so on. And what about setting aside marine protected areas? What about how much land should we preserve on earth so that we can grow crops optimally, but still maintain the natural balance? What? How, how would you define eco-diversity? Do you know many how, how many species are propagating compared to how many are going extinct? And the answer is, You don't know any of that. And so that also means you're not an environmentalist. It also means that I've just shone a light on your claim that you're an environmentalist showing you that it's unbelievably shallow and just a false virtue signaling flag. And so you can't have a nuanced conversation because what you do is you tell people, you say to people, you're using a very big tile Mm -hmm. to cover an awful lot of snakes, Mm -hmm. like thousands of them or hundreds of thousands of them. And I'll just lift up the tile and show you the snakes, and some of those snakes are you, mm-hmm. and your pretension that your tile actually constitutes knowledge, when it, when it, which it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so, if you have a nuanced conversation, and you show that you understand the details, at least to some degree, then you're a threat to the integrity of the person's worldview, so you replace that unity with a complex and anxiety-provoking multiplicity, and you also illuminate their pretension to moral virtue and so it's no bloody wonder they don't like you it's like oh you said this is way more complex than you think you have no entitlement to moral virtue as a consequence of your low resolution mm-hmm. claim
2: you well. do that you you lift up the lid a lot and you know yeah. you've got security uh here I, I was wondering good guys lovely man yeah, uh, yeah was, they're really I, good i was yeah. wondering um you know with all of the shining of the light that you've done on certain people who hold very dear to their heart, their opinions and their virtues and all that, how bad it's gotten for you at times because you become incredibly well-known and whenever that happens, and I know that they've came for you multiple times, but have you ever had any situations where you thought, I could do with some security here?
1: Well, we decided um, the the security thing is an ambiguous blessing, let's say. Mm-hmm. I mean, my security people who are who are tough and competent people and alert, are not primarily used for security around me. They're primarily used for logistics Mm -hmm. because my days are very packed and they're packed in a way that requires very careful orchestration, primarily because I'm on a book tour and there's a rule when you're on a tour, if you're doing two or three venues a week of 4,000 people, let's say, and the rule is you absolutely 100% have to be at the venue early enough beforehand Mm -hmm. to prepare so that the show goes on Mm -hmm. and there's no room for failure on that front because otherwise you annoy 4,000 people and that's just not acceptable and especially if you're doing it sequentially so things have to be timed very carefully and while i'm doing that in all the countries that i'm visiting i'm also meeting with cultural and political leaders constantly and so it's very tightly scheduled and i can't do that Mm -hmm. without help and competent help. And so I have a lot of people who are doing things, what do they do? Well, I never pay attention to transportation. I always have a car available Mm -hmm. and sometimes multiple cars. I don't have to pay any attention to flights. I don't have to pay any attention to hotels. I don't have to pay any attention to restaurants. <laughs> I don't have to worry about whether my wife is doing okay because she has someone with her if I'm not around mm-hmm. and someone helping her. And the re- and my security logistics guys handle that. And I have a secretarial team that organizes all of that mm-hmm. as well. And so, so that, that was partly organizational because we learned on the first tour back in 2018 My wife was handling a lot of that Mm -hmm. and it was too much Mm -hmm. and it wasn't it was not obviously sustainable, Mm -hmm. right? It was wearing me out and it was also wearing her out. And one rule about being worn out is, well, you're either being egotistical because you think you can do more than you can Mm -hmm. or you're taking on too much responsibility, which is also a kind of egotism and a kind of victimization. And you're not delegating enough, Mm -hmm. which is also kind of greedy. You know, because in my situation, I have a lot of opportunity and a lot of privilege, we could say. And I, I if I'm wise, I can parcel out some of that to other people mm-hmm. and then they have a, something good to do and useful yeah. and interesting. And then they can be helpful and the whole enterprise can work better. And mm-hmm. so um, now on the security front, plain and, and simple, my wife and I talked about this last year with my family mm-hmm. and I. Um, My wife said, John Lennon only got shot once, which is, you know, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to John Lennon, but but it it only takes one bullet. Well, it only takes (laughs) one person who's, you know, bent. And now if you looked at my life online, you'd think that I was just being vilified nonstop wherever I go. And Mm -hmm. that's just not true at all. So all my interactions with people in public. With the tiniest exceptions, are extremely positive. In fact, they're overwhelmingly positive. Of course. And so that's ama- that's amazing, and it's it's such an honor that that's the case. Um, now and then, maybe one in five thousand encounters someone is hostile, um, and I you don't forget that when it happens because when someone you don't know is hostile to you, you don't know where that might go, and so it and it happened once when I was with my son and it happened once when I was with my wife and once when I was alone. And none of those situations were dangerous. But that, that doesn't mean that, that you should not pay attention to them or that they're not stressful. Because if, you, if some stranger just came up to you on the street and started harassing you, so angrily and insultingly, you have no idea who that person is and they could be anyone and that's that's bad when they could be anyone because people can get pretty damn demented and you can run into someone who's crazy enough to light themselves on fire just to singe you and so and I know what people like that are like cuz I've seen many people like that and so we decided that we needed logistics help and we needed more eyes just attending to everything that was going on you know and I my security guys are very friendly with everyone Mm -hmm. and they're very welcoming and hospitable and and they're very oriented towards that. And then they're very adamant about getting the logistics right. And because most of them are military guys, they're also very good at that kind of, you know, detailed strategic organization. And so that's become necessary to make this enterprise carry on in an effective way. There's a bit of a cost to that, but it's not really avoidable. I can't really go out now Mm -hmm. Anytime, anywhere that's in public, mm-hmm. and just have it be ordinary, you know. Mm-hmm. So even if if I'm in Toronto and my wife and I in our little neighborhood, we walk this little kind of little village in the middle of the city. If we just walk down to the corner store, or to the local pharmacy, a couple of blocks, the probability that all gets stopped like five or six times, always positive, is a hundred percent. And so everything turns into a show in some real sense.
2: I wondered what the cost was to you though, personally, like on an on a emotional level, because I think you're a bit misunderstood by some people because it feels like uh, your goal is to help people overall. That's, that's what always comes across from you. Whenever I see you get emotional and things, I think this guy's a good man um, and somewhere along the lines, uh, other people have managed to maybe distort that message uh or maybe in those long nuanced conversations you've had with people like joe rogan a soundbite has been taken out and that's been thrown out there and that's the thing that people then know you for and i just wondered how how you're coping
1: well the the consequences of that online Mm -hmm. and in the media is that i'm being chewed on on a regular basis Mm -hmm. by people who are ranging in social status you know the last thing was Olivia Wilde's pronouncement that the villain in her new movie was based on me. And so, which was quite by that we we've had this happen so many times now. I mean by we my family because we all kind of react to this as a unit mm-hmm. and we've learned how to deal with it mm-hmm. to some degree, you know, because for a long time when something like that happened, it wasn't obvious that it wasn't going it could have been a disaster, right? Because you can get taken out. And I mean by disaster when this all this blew up around me, disaster initially would have meant I would lose my professorship. I would lose my clinical license and mm-hmm. and a, a huge chunk of my ability to be viable financially. Now I had three sources of income. So, and one of them was private because I have my own company and have had for a long time. It's pretty hard to take me out financially, <clears throat> but that was still the risk and then the risk to my professional mm-hmm. reputation.
2: And this and, is all new to you at the time and oh, when yeah. things are blowing up in its first happening is from personal experience The the first times it happens, the more, Oh God, out of control it feels. Whereas when you become battle hardened, you know, you get thick skin, obviously. Yeah.
1: Well, and you also learn how these things work and Mm -hmm. the way they work. now it depends on how stupid the thing is that you did that you're being attacked for Mm -hmm. because you might bear some culpability, right? And that's a tough thing to sort out. So the latest, one of the latest, Scandals, I suppose that I've been involved in, culminated in me being essentially ejected from Twitter. Now, really, what happened was, they they didn't like one of my tweets um, about uh, this actress actor Ellen slash Elliot Page, and uh, because I dead named her, I suppose they never really told me the reason. But I presume that's dead named, you know, because now that's become a mortal sin um, because of the bloody trans activists. And anyways, they suspended my account unless i would delete the tweet and i'm not deleting the damn tweet and Mm -hmm. the tweet has caused a fair bit of tension among some of the people i'd been communicating with who are more on the liberal and progressive side because they didn't like that tweet although i'm not it was harsh and but i'm not sorry enough about it to delete it so that's life you know that's a boundary um But when you get attacked for that sort of thing, like being banned from Twitter, which became quite scandalous and more evidence that I'm just a reprehensible character, you have to, first of all, your conscience goes after you, right? Because if a bunch of people come after you and say you're reprehensible, generally, if that happens, it's because you're reprehensible. That's generally the, and if you don't respond to that in some way, well, then you're, you're kind of psychopathic because you don't care. It's like, I do care. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm wrong just because people are upset. And that's definitely the case when society has become somewhat unstable. Your response, I've
0: been a... Uh, I, I guess I, I first came across your work when uh, during the time when you were talking about um, come com, uh, being compelled to speak in a certain way yes. in Canada Yeah, the pronoun then, law yeah and I, but then I read both your books I thought they were fantastic books oh, thank uh, you, they sir. had a profound impact on me I found them very interesting especially from a religious perspective I, I found it uh-huh. very interesting um, we both come from a, we're more I guess we identify as atheists yeah but I, I think it's very That's interesting your pronoun. As one of them. Um, I think I'm agnostic. You're agnostic. Uh, I guess agnostic. Agnostic atheist. You can never really know to that extent. But I found what you were saying very interesting. And my wife's Muslim and we're raising our kids Muslim. So I I guess there's an interesting aspect with that. But what I find difficult, I guess, to justify, I'm, I'm speaking from only my experience. I went to Goldsmiths and you might know Goldsmiths as a quite a liberal Marxist university in South London. When I went there, I, my experience was quite similar to the way that you describe liberal universities. Quite radical. It's an extremely radical university.
2: Um, you know, they extreme, go on strike every now and then. They they go
1: on strike. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have universities
2: like yeah, that. There's, yeah. there's always something they're striking about. Yeah. I don't yeah. even know it. I, I never went to university, and but I, I know that about them. They're known yeah. for it. <laughs> and yeah. and that's a,
1: what they specialize yeah, in, kind of. striking. Yeah, that's the thing I'm yeah.
2: actually most, other than the women who went there, but sure. it's another love the story. <laughs> so it definitely is. Yeah.
0: I guess from my perspective, I saw the merits Uh, I I went to that university and I guess I was more centrist uh, in retrospect before I went there Uh, I saw the merit of some of the things that the left say and I saw some of the merits in discussing Marxism and a lot of the debates that we had at those universities in that time it really opened up my mind in that time not that I was particularly smart or anything but it really opened up my mind and sometimes I guess the struggle that I have with speaking about you to other people and my my circles would be more liberal side because of the aggressive uh, relationship you now have with some of these circles, it makes it a lot more difficult for me to open up some yeah. of what you're discussing with those people. So for instance, when you say those bloody trans activists, yeah. from my perspective, that's a very broad term for a lot of, some people will consider themselves low down on being a trans activist. Some people will consider themselves to be radical. Yeah. How, do you, how do you see that? Because well, okay, I'm, so I'm interested to le-
1: know. Let's look at this tweet. This, because I I can't it, even say it
2: by the way I've just tried to see the tweet they've almost like blanked it. Do you the, remember? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Roughly I mean I it, said it was in June this year and that's pride month and mm. as far as I'm concerned pride is not a virtue and a month it's like really a month really mm. a month Christmas is one day. <laughs> well <laughs> Christmas wanna, is t- well, well it could be 12 yeah true, add true is it, a month fair enough yeah, yeah but you know we don't have public parades for Advent. I get what you mean. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so we first should. of all, pride. Yeah. We're really celebrating that. Are we? Cause that's a cardinal sin and it really is. And
2: I mean, really. And month, that's a little, you're pushing it guys. So I said, Can I ask why you, it's a cardinal sin? Cause I, I'm a bit in the dark. Here. I didn't. Well, you're, you're well, agnostic. Well, atheist, okay.
1: Okay. Well, it's because look, we're having a, a productive conversation. Okay. So how can we tell? Are you interested in the conversation? Yeah. So am I. Uh Is the time going by quickly? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So those are good markers. Now they're biological markers. So imagine that your nervous system is tuned Mm -hmm. so that you find any experience that puts you on the edge of development as engaging. Mm -hmm. So imagine you're wrestling or you're playing or you're in a sports competition. Now you want to be matched with someone who's about as good as you Mm -hmm. or maybe even a little better. And you think, well, why, if it's about victory, so if it's about power, why not find some player who's nowhere near as good as you and just stomp them? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, well, that's not fair. That's one answer and the other is, well, that's no fun. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, why is it no fun if the point is the victory? And the answer is, well, the point isn't the victory. The point is, well, what is the point? Well, the point is the fun. Yeah, but what's the point of the fun? Well, the point of the fun is to signal optimal development. And so that's the line between yin and yang. That's the line of meaning. And it's the line between chaos and order. Mm-hmm. And chaos is where you don't understand things at all. Mm-hmm. And order in its extreme is where you don't understand as much as you think you do, right? So it, mm-hmm. it gets tyrannical. And so structure and lack of structure or actuality and possibility. Now, how do you mediate between those two? And the answer is you have an instinct for that. And the Mm -hmm. instinct is meaning and engagement. And your nervous system is signaling to you, we're not, this conversation isn't so contentious that we're upset. And it's not so mundane that we're bored. Mm -hmm. It's right on the, it's right on the border. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so, so let's go back to the, to the, to the tweet, the mean tweet. So I said, oh yes." so why is pride a sin? Okay, so pride's a sin because humility is the precondition for play. So the reason that we can have this conversation and it's working is because you know there are some things you don't know. And I know that there are some things I don't know. And I assume that you might know some things that I don't know that are useful Mm -hmm. and vice versa. And then we can throw our mutual knowledge back and forth in this spirit of, let's say, playful engagement, and we can move towards mutual enlightenment and redemption. And I would say redemption because, well, you're trying to redeem yourself from your ignorance and your blindness, but you're also trying to redeem yourself from your excessive pride. And your pride would be, I know what I'm saying. I know what I'm doing. It's like what I know goes. It's like, well, maybe it's like, is everything paradisal around you? Is everything set in perfect order around you and if the answer to that is no well probably you have something to learn and then you might say well what's the attitude that signals that you have something to learn and the answer is technically the answer is humility and that's the opposite of pride and so that's pride is a sin because it leads you to be a tyrant and it stops you from learning and then it also leads you to you know it the, the tyrant part is exercise control over others because you're right mm-hmm. and so pride Pride is one of the cardinal sins, along with lying. Those two things together are sort of the nexus of hell. Mm -hmm. So, like a totalitarian state is prideful because the totalitarians say, well, we already know everything. It's it's embodied in Marxist doctrine. Mm -hmm. We've got the truth, 100% of the truth. Mm -hmm. And if you dare to oppose it, you're obviously an enemy because we have 100% of the truth. Mm -hmm. And so, and not only do we have the truth, but our interpretation of the truth is 100 percent correct it's like mm-hmm. really it's quite that's, dogmatic in this well un- unbelievably dogmatic and you know that can manifest itself on the religious front too and, and does quite frequently it's why some it's often why people criticize religious institutions any and all institutions can tilt into that uh-huh. but pride is the opposite of humility and humility is the precondition for learning mm-hmm. and you know you might say that's partly why humility is something that was practiced, say, by genuinely religious people as a virtue. Because mm. the idea would be to open yourself up like a child. You know how open a child is to learning. Well, the child doesn't assume he or she knows everything already. Mm-hmm. They're just looking around all the time, which is one of the things so remarkable about children. They're just looking around all the time at everything no. <laughs> they don't know. And with it, with us, like an infant, that's just, yeah. they're just like this all the time. Mm wondering what yeah. in the world's going on and trying to learn. And so pride stops learning. And so when I see something like Pride Month, I think pride, that's not a virtue. It's not a virtue. Mm-hmm. Can I ask could you Sorry yeah. to cut you off again. That's okay. Kind of. so no, that's only
2: a little it, tiny fraction of the tweet. Uh, the, <laughs> the confusion for me, I guess, is when, when I hear your reaction to Pride Month. I, I, I personally have never... I'm not a gay guy, and I don't really have a lot of uh, gay friends. If I'm honest well, with you, we're, so, we're, so okay. You know, I mean, I, I, we look at each other occasionally a little too yeah, long. Yeah,
0: apart yeah, from yeah that. I've noticed that. It's um, yeah. quite sad. <laughs>
1: yeah. um, <but> Try
2: it. <laughs> I mean, we're like we're husbands uh, for sure, but. um When I say all over my social media, the rainbows are everywhere. You know, I'm kind of like, yeah, my life gets invaded by it, but it's not uh, an inconvenience to me. I'm like, eh, let them have it. Well, if it makes them happy, like whatever. It doesn't annoy me in any way. Um, And and when I watched your reaction there, it was kind of like, oh, I wonder why you find that uh, maybe more uh, irritating.
1: Well, it's just too much.
2: Right. That's why it's like, Uh.
1: I agree with you. So First of all, Technically speaking, any social norm Mm -hmm. has a unity at the center, Mm -hmm. that's what makes it a norm or an ideal, and has a fringe at the periphery. Mm -hmm. And the category has to be loose enough so the fringe can be allowed to exist. But the fringe can't take the center because the center has to be a unity Mm -hmm. or it's not a center. Mm -hmm. And so, in our society, the fringe keeps taking the center. And that can't happen. Because the 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 unity
2: goes with the flow too much. Like, um, as well, a
1: whole. That, well, it's also because the fringe feels alienated because they're not at the center. Okay. But it, it doesn't cent- matter. But the center is
0: also, I guess, the center, some people would argue, had become... Yeah. I, I, I don't fully believe this, but yeah, in a way, but also become quite lazy, maybe a little bit sloppy in the way that it was operating, and some people saw a bit of a void in that unity. Yeah, it always and happens. That's yeah. the evil uncle. It yeah. happens all
1: the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, not that
0: LGBT people are evil uncles. But no, you no, 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 no. Well, yeah. But I mean, the
1: center has an evil uncle. Right. And the center is that. Well, the center is a little off center, and it's a little more tyrannical than it should and be. And it varies. Of course, yeah. it does. And right. that's right. It varies from 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 time to time because yeah. the center has to move, mm-hmm. which is a weird thing. And the reason the center has to to move is because the the environment moves and it's like a snake and you got to keep up with it and so that's why that's why dialogue is necessary because the way that we adjudicate the center the moving center is through logos is through dialogue so then how do you that's i guess can i interject
2: because i'm just thinking like when you said earlier about the evil uncle and and the way the center moves generally speaking you said to say people who want power like to say that they are always tyrannical is, yeah. is just not true. Oh, no. But, but does that not mean, though, by the very nature of wanting to get that, that more of the percentage is leaning towards being the evil uncle, generally speaking?
1: No, well, it depends on the society. It, it's mm-hmm. definitely a risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look around the world, most societies aren't free, mm-hmm. right? And you could, you could get a rough estimate of that just by looking at, well, which societies attract immigrants? Mm-hmm. And that, that's just an obvious marker, right? It's like, do you want to live there or not? That's yeah. the fundamental. Or do you want to leave where you are and go there? Yeah. You say, well, there isn't perfect. It's like, f- fair enough. It's, it's though. It is yeah, right. It's yeah. better than where you're, yeah. you're at. And so you can just rank countries by how many people want to go there. And you get a rough estimate of who's got the balance right. Mm-hmm. And so you might say, well, order keeps chaos under control. It's like, yes, but not optimally. What keeps chaos under control First of all, it's not under control, it's balanced. That's a better way of thinking about it. What keeps order and chaos optimally balanced is something like logos. And I mean that technically, when you have a dialogue. So our dialogue is engaging. So dialogue log means dialogos. logos. It means two logos interacting. So the question is, what's logos? And logos is something like the spirit that mediates between order and chaos. And, and it is a, why is it a spirit? Well, it's a spirit because it can inhabit you and it, it, it produces a, a mode of being. And the mode of being is something like lack of self-consciousness and deep engagement. And so that's the mark that things are balanced. And that's not a tyrant it's the it's the very opposite of a tyrant Mm -hmm. and it's not order it's the phenomenon that produces habitable order out of chaos and you can tell when that's happening because it happens if you're in a say a loving relationship with your wife and and there's that playful dynamic that goes along with that it happens when you have the same with your kids it manifests itself most clearly in the spirit of play and so our discussion is somewhat playful like we're pushing each other Mm -hmm. We're trying to discuss things we don't understand and there's a back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's optimally balanced because there's a bit of humor about it. So that's one of the ways you can tell it's optimally balanced. And with any luck, we're doing it well enough Mm -hmm. so that other people who aren't part of the conversation still find it engaging, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can tell that we've got something right there. Not only is it working for the two of us and the two of us and the three of us, but also it's working in a manner that works for us that's working for other people. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of harmony harmonious balance there that's sort of like music mm-hmm. and music's a good uh, representation of that. That's why people play music, mm-hmm. right? Because it's, it, it marks the spirit of play because musicians are playing with sound and they do that in a harmonious way where all the parts are related to one another and are moving towards some point point. and so music is a great representation of the spirit of play. Mm-hmm. It's the best representation of the spirit of play, I think, abstractly, of all, of all the arts. And so, that's the antithesis to power. Not, not, it, not it, it, That's the right way of thinking about it. It's the antithesis to power, mm. especially corrupt power. Now, back to pride. Pride is an impediment to the spirit of play. That's a good way of thinking about it. Pride requires the imposition of force. Because if I'm, if I know what I'm doing, and I'm trumpeting that as well as something that marks my identity above yours, I'm proud of it, mm-hmm. then... I can't engage in dialogue, I can't be humble, I can't open myself up to revelation, let's say, which because a conversation is a form of revelation, right, because it's in interpersonal communication. I get access to you, which mm. is quite something, you know, because you've it is paid for your experience with hardship and you can tell me about that and if I listen, then maybe I won't have to have the hardship that would be necessary to garner the wisdom. How often do you find that's the case? Because I, I um I don't know, I feel like a lot of the
0: time maybe people have told me while I was young, avoid this or avoid that. And the only time I've really learned it is when it kind of happened to me. (laughs) happened to me. Well, you know,
1: I think the less you're willing to die optimally, the more it has to be forced upon you by fate. Mm. You know, and so if you keep yourself updated because you're looking in the nooks and crannies, then the, the serpents can't breed and come out and get you. And that's also an extremely old story. Like the notion that if you ignore a snake... Anywhere. It'll just grow and eventually it'll come out of the closet and get you, you know. And so the question, well, what do you do about that? It's like, well, you go look for the snakes while they're still babies. And so to some degree, that's what we're doing in this conversation, as we're thinking, Well, this bugs me. And this bugs me. And I don't really understand this. And I don't really understand that. Maybe we should discuss it, delineate it, unpack mm-hmm. it, and so then we can dispense with the problem before it makes itself manifest at a large scale. And that's why we have a right to free speech. Mm-hmm. So first of all, we don't have a right to free speech. That's a wrong way of thinking about it. Any society that's going to stabilize itself across time has to be predicated on the ability of people to communicate. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, because that's how we think. Because you might think you go home and think. It's like, first of all, don't be thinking you're that good at thinking. It's really hard to learn how to think. You have to learn how to divide yourself into several people internally. And then you have to let Those people represent things you don't want to represent, and then you have to let them have a war in your head, and you have to be able to tolerate that. That's really hard, and you probably can't do it. There's very few people who are expert at that. It takes years of training. So how do you do it if you're not able to really think? Now, that doesn't mean you can't think at all, but don't be thinking you're an expert at it. Well, you do that by talking to people. That's how you think. And then the question is, why do you think? Well, Alfred North Whitehead said, the reason we think is so that we can let our thoughts die instead of us. So imagine you have a stupid idea, mm-hmm. which is highly probable, right? <laughs> just imagine. You might have 50 of them a day. Many, so yeah. then you think, well, let's go act out that stupid idea, which is what you do if you're an impulsive. And yeah. so you act out the stupid idea and you get just walloped by the world and maybe you die. Ugh. Well, so what's an alternative? Well, why don't you throw your stupid idea out on the table to a bunch of other people and say, I have this idea and I'm kind of thinking about acting it out. Is it stupid? And you, maybe you're prideful about your idea because you know, you're attracted by it and you thought it up, whatever that means. And so now you're glued to it. Plus Mm -hmm. it tiles something for you. Mm -hmm. So you're invested in it and you don't want it to be a stupid idea, but then like, yeah, fine. Do you want to die or do you want your, let your idea die? And so a lot of what we do in dialogue is kill stupid ideas Mm -hmm. and we do that. So we don't act them out and we, don't want to act them out because then we die and this even works biologically so the part of your brain that generates thought grew out of the part of your brain that you use to voluntarily control your actions so you could say a thought is a potential action people think a thought is a representation of the world it's like yeah not fundamentally fundamentally a thought is a potential action so then In your imagination you make avatars of yourself so that's you and your imagine what if i did this it's a little avatar of yourself you think what if i did this here's the world i walk i act like this these good things happen that's my vision then you throw your vision on the table and you say i have this vision and you say well that's a stupid vision because you didn't take this into account and how are you going to do that and you think oh that sucks because i had this vision Mm -hmm. but well thank you because i didn't see those snakes Mm -hmm. you know Right. And then it's tricky because maybe you're mad because I had a vision and you don't have one and so you're pissed off about that mm-hmm. and so you're just attacking my vision because yeah. you know you
2: don't have anything better to do. And- I, I've had this conversation with someone before where a kid told me he wanted like a million followers on social media yeah. and I was like, yeah, but that's not going to happen though. Mm-hmm. Like not for you. Because mm-hmm. uh, right. I knew, because I had the experience, you know, and then I had that moment where they basically freaked out right yeah well you, you
1: shatter a dream eh? absolutely yeah. well so a dream it's is a mean. tile of the future
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you say what's the future well you don't know well here's a vision so mm-hmm. that's now it's a tile mm-hmm. and then it covers the future and it also covers it in a pleasing way yeah. then you come along and say you know it's a little low res well you could say <laughs> to someone who wants that are you sure you want a million followers you know because people say i'd be happy if i had 400 million dollars it's mm-hmm. like You think you could handle that responsibility, do you? Like, you're so sure of that, that Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you'd have all this money dumped on your... You can't even control your household budget. Mm -hmm. You live from paycheck to paycheck. Now somebody's going to dump a treasure on your steps and that's going to fix your life. It's like, okay, how much are you going to give to your relatives? Mm -hmm. Like, none? Mm -hmm. Oh, that'll work out real well. Too much? So then you're going to take away their responsibility from them, are you? Mm -hmm. And you're going to get that balance exactly right. And then what are you going to do with that money? Because as soon as you got the money, the parasites are going to come in and take your money. Yeah, I had clients
2: that were... Happens quickly, believe me.
1: Unbelievably, unbelievably quickly. (sighs) quickly. It happens unbelievably quickly. You know, you'll see... Well, the average family fortune lasts three generations. Mm -hmm. That's all. Because money sitting around, not Mm. being carefully monitored,
2: it's like water. It just... it's happened to me in my life It's um, the amount of money I've had in my life you've
0: spent three family generations worth of cash no I'm talking about just
2: (laughs) it's been quite something because I came from nothing yeah and I've I've made amounts of money that I never dreamed were possible right and yet I have very little to show for it, if I'm being honest with you, because right. of how, what, what culminates around you and how many people all of a sudden come to the table. And me being a generous, soft-natured person, they say a fool is easily part with his money. I feel yep. like a fool, yep. to be honest with you. Uh, feel uh, w- like. One one thing uh, I do want to actually go back to, because there's, there's certain things about you that have always spoken to me specifically. I mean, we were talking about Lion King earlier. And
1: we also haven't finished uncovering that tweet.
2: I do, but Italy, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this is important, actually, for... For, just for me personally you bring up because um, Lion King uh, Forrest Gump Godfather Braveheart all my favourite movies surround about young boy becomes a man uh, right and, right well that's and, the
1: Pinocchio story yeah and, and the Peter Pan story except yeah. he doesn't all, all manage so it you're great on there. there's, oh, thank you yeah
2: there's so many of them and and me personally my uh, relationship with my dad was difficult growing up he was in prison all sorts of things happened where I wasn't I wasn't with him a lot yeah. and my when I hear you talk about uh, young men's search to become a man and, and it feels like uh, obviously you've got a huge audience ar- around those uh, topics when you've covered them because so many men young men especially feel so lost right now and they're searching for these answers of how do we get to that point and I mean, w- it felt. It feels like when I look back in um, even fifty years ago, that wasn't there the way yeah. it is now. Oh, that's definitely the case. Yeah. Uh, well,
1: when my dad was my dad was a school teacher. He's still alive, and he got disenchanted with school teaching in part because all of the authority in his classroom was taken from him. So if there were disciplinary issues in the class, it had to be brought up the hierarchy to the to the the administrative echelons above him. And so mm-hmm. he he could feel his authority in the class slipping away and he was quite an authoritative teacher my dad was my teacher in grade six um for math i wasn't in his Mm homeroom but i remember and by grade six this is about 12 years old kids are pretty pushy and fractious you know and 10 minutes before the class started the first time my dad walked into the room everyone was silent because he had a reputation and the reputation was don't mess with him and it wasn't because he was mean you know he had a he had a hard spine and you didn't want to push him but he was authoritative and he also got disenchanted with television so when he was young and even when i was young there were shows like my three sons and father knows best can you imagine a show called father knows best now (laughs) the closest i've seen to that recently is is ted lasso Mm-hmm. That's the only sitcom I've seen for like five gener- five decades, in some sense, that has a genuinely positive male lead. Mm-hmm. So kudos to Ted Lasso. You see that a little bit in The Simpsons, hey? Eh? because that's why it was such an interestingly subversive show, because Homer's a bumbling fool. And Marge, in some sense, has the moral upper hand, but not entirely. But Homer... The thing about Homer is he's trying. He's not very bright, but he is trying. Mm-hmm. And he would like to be a good father. And he's faithful to his wife and, and his kids. And so there is this underlying solidity of that male character. But, you know, it's damning with faint praise. And now young men, they're on under assault for, on two from two directions fundamentally. One is all male authority is nothing but patriarchal oppression. And so imagine now you're an ambitious young man, which is the drive toward, toward that authority. Well, all that is is a manifestation of the power dynamic in men that produced the patriarchal oppressive colonial tyranny. And so now you're a moral young man. You think, well, my ambition is to be not only to be questioned, it's to be squelched entirely because it's nothing but a manifestation of power. Imagine that maybe you escape from that by some maneuvering, but then there's another assault that's waiting, which is all human activity is nothing but part of the force that's devouring the planet and that's going to put us all in flames. It's like, oh good. So not only am I part of the patriarchal oppressive force, but I'm also the despoiler of mother nature. Mm -hmm. And so if you tell boys that, Constantly, And you do. And then you also say all of the sexual advances that you make towards women on any front whatsoever are to be regarded with extreme skepticism. And then you feed them pornography on a nonstop basis. <laughs> so there's an easy way out. And that's a unbelievably powerful. Oh, it's a drug. Oh, well, mm. you know, no one really thinks this through in some sense. But any 12 year old boy, 13 year old boy can now see more beautiful naked women in 15 minutes than the richest king in history ever saw in his whole life Mm. you think well you know we don't have to worry about that it's like yeah you have to worry about that that's a that's a huge problem and it's a demoralizing problem Mm. because it offers an easy way out and so if all of your ambition is nothing but the junior manifestation of power and should be squelched out of you as early as possible and schools do this because they punish boys for playing So hyperactivity looks like suppressed play behavior. So there's good animal models of that, by the way. And you can, if you deprive animals of play, especially juvenile male animals, a lot of this has been done with rats because they're very playful, by the way. If you deprive them of play, they'll play hyperactively when you give them the opportunity. And you can suppress that with methylphenidate. That's Ritalin. It suppresses play behavior. Now it focuses attention focuses attention attention deficit it's like no probably not these boys just need to be out in the playground running around playing like for more time than they're allowed with their boisterous competitive play behavior you know and we don't need competition you know all all games should be cooperative which is complete <laughs> rubbish uh-huh. it's not a game if it's just cooperative and it's such a dopey view of cooperation like if you and i you and i are playing one on one basketball then well, are we cooperating or competing? Well, did you play, did you bring a chessboard? No. you You, you came to play basketball. Mm-hmm. Well, how about that's cooperation? We've decided what the rules are going to be. That's cooperation. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Fundamental. We're playing the same game. That's cooperation. Mm-hmm. Think it through. And so then, are we competing? Well, yes. But what does that mean? It means, well... We're, we're getting in each other's way in some sense while we're trying to hit the goal. But we're doing that in a way that improves our skill at hitting the goal. Because if you set up an obstacle to me, which is what you do if we're playing one-on-one basketball, you're making it difficult for me to hit the target. Mm-hmm. And so that means you're making me better at hitting the target. And if we do that optimally, then it's fun. Mm-hmm. And you might say, why? Well, the word sin is derived from a Greek word, hamartia, and there's a there's a Jewish parallel semantic track, by the way, that has the same underlying structure. Hamartia is an archery term. It means to miss the target. And so what we're trying to do is hit the target. Well, what's the target? Well, that's the question. It's a hard question. But we're trying to hit the target. And how do you know? Well, what are people doing when they're playing sports? Like all sports, virtually, are circulate around hitting the target mm-hmm. it might be crossing the finish line first so the target would be being the fastest among that group so that would be swimming let's say or it might be football all of, of its variants mm-hmm. obviously that's a you're hitting the target that's what basketball is that's what shooting is mm-hmm. that's what archery is mm-hmm. it's all hitting the target now we're hunting creatures we're based on a hunting platform And we're visual hunters too. And so we're looking at targets all the time and trying to hit them. And part of what we're doing when we're competing is we set a joint target and then we set up an adversarial structure that improves our skill while we practice hitting the target. Mm -hmm. And so is that competition? It's like, well, no, it's not competition in that the goal is to defeat you, even though I'm gonna try to win because otherwise the game's no fun. The real game is, can we make each other better in a sustainable way so that we can hit the target more effectively and men especially on the sports pitch of course women do this too but it's, it's more of a masculine enterprise in some sense it's a masculine enterprise not a male enterprise not, not for men only it's honing your ability to hit the target and when you deviate from the target deviation from the target that's sin that's what it means it's so useful to know that it's like well I missed the mark and then you're guilty about it well you should be you're supposed to hit the mark and what's the mark well the mark is the line between order and chaos or the line, the mark is the the playful engagement in good conversation the mark is a really intense game eh? an intense game is you're serious about it the pushing per, person is pushing you right to your bloody limit mm-hmm. and vice versa and you want that in a conversation too and maybe you want that in a movie you know you want to be pushed to your limit that's why people go to horror movies for example not past your limit, because that's stressful, but right on that edge. Comedy does that. Mm-hmm. Like a great comedian puts you, right, can I say this? Jimmy Carr's good at that. So is Bill Burr. It's like, oh my God, do I have to say this? Mm-hmm. Yes. Here it is. Everybody goes, ah. it's It's so funny because the laughter is spontaneous. And it's an indication that the person hit the target mm-hmm. and you can't regulate it because you don't laugh consciously, Exactly. right? You laugh unconsciously. And then the, the comedian knows, Hey, I hit the target with that one. Everybody mm-hmm. goes, oh, ah, yeah, I can't believe you said that. Mm-hmm. Someone had to say it. Thank God they said it. Mm-hmm. And then we get enlightened a little bit by the comedians. And so they hit the target and they're really good at that. So Jung, Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst said, the fool is the precursor to the savior. Why? Because the fool will tell the truth, right? And. And you can't redeem yourself without telling the truth and in the court. So the court might be the place where the evil King rules. And that's one possibility that the King's court, maybe the evil King is ruling. Well, you need a fool. Why? Well, the fool's beneath contempt. So the fool can say anything. Well, so is the fool, the fool or the King? Because if the fool is the only person free enough to say anything, mm-hmm. it's not obvious that the King is in control. It might be the fool's in control that has the real power, but he doesn't have the responsibility that goes with that. Well, he has the responsibility to be funny, right? Okay, right. Well, yeah. so that is a responsibility. Yeah. It's a responsibility not, to yeah. tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Now he's not—he's not the administrator, right? But at least he's the person who's feeding truth into the culture, and certainly comedians do that. Like Which one is- marker of someone you can't trust is. Well, I have no sense of humor. I don't see why that's funny. It's like, yeah, you don't. That's that's pretty sad. We should... There's some things comedians shouldn't be allowed to make fun of. It's like, yeah, you're going to decide that, are you? You're going to decide what people get to think is funny. This unconscious manifestation. Mm. You're going to regulate that. And you're going to claim pridefully that, well, yeah, I'm going to regulate that. And things will be a hell of a lot better because of it. It's like, yeah... If you're the sort of tyrant that can't stand the, if you're the sort of king that can't stand the fool, then you're a tyrant. Mm-hmm. So that's a great marker for people to
2: like be leery of. One thing I I was interested to know is I've never heard you talk about conspiracy theories, and I wonder oh. if, if any of them uh, had ever appealed to you, where you were thinking, actually, I think well, I'm some. not
1: I'm not particularly
2: conspiratorial
1: by temperament.
2: But you're investigative, so, so yes. I just wondered if there was well, anything about well,
1: the thing, so conspiracy theories in some sense are the fantasies of disagreeable people so disagreeable people are very skeptical and they think what's going on behind the scenes and so they (laughs) and then some of them get a little on the psychotic end and so they have quite a wide fantasy networks they get paranoid so when disagreeable people become psychotic they get paranoid and so then you might say well you know, what do they say? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that no one is after you, which <laughs> yeah. I really love. And the thing about paranoid people is, well, sometimes they're right. You know, so they produce a lot of behind the scenes theories and what? Two percent of the time they're on target. And so it's kind of useful to keep an eye on the conspiracy theories because... They're the most sceptical people who are using the most fantasy. Now, the, and so they're creative in a sense. They're creative in this sort of disagreeable way. Mm. The thing about creativity... I feel like you're
2: describing Alex Jones basically. Yes. Well, in a way. There's it, lots yeah. of people like yeah. that and they're worth they attending did.
1: to because yeah. now and then they dig up a nugget, you know? Right. Yeah. And so, but, but a lot of it's noise and not signal. Mm-hmm. And this is actually the problem with creativity is that creativity is absolutely necessary but most ideas are stupid and destructive so like what do we do with that Mm -hmm. because zero creativity means you can't adapt nothing changes but everything changes so you better change with it Mm -hmm. but how fast and the answer is well the creative person thinks well change this and change this and change this and radically transform that and here's a good idea it's like maybe sometimes one of those ideas would work incrementally better but probably not. Probably they just upset everything. So you've got to be unbelievably judicious in relationship to creative ideas. And the same thing works on the paranoid front. It's like, so, and you need rules about that. So one rule is don't assume malevolence when stupidity is sufficient explanation. Boris Johnson. And that it's a really good, it's a really good rule because stupidity, ignorance, let's say. Mm-hmm. And I don't even mean willful blindness. I mean, just the fact that people don't know what the hell they're doing. That accounts for so many problems that you can hardly even believe it. And then you could add willful blindness to that, which is people's refusal to look at something they know they should look at, but Mm -hmm. don't. And then you can add some malevolence in there. And all of those are a factor. But one of the ways to protect yourself against conspiratorial thinking is to give some due credence to ignorance. Like people make lots of mistakes because they just don't know any better. Mm-hmm. And then they make some mistakes because they won't look. And then they make some mistakes because they're trying to cause trouble. The conspiratorial thinker jumps right to malevolence and 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 willful blindness. It says, well, you know, you're willfully blind and you're malevolent. It's like, well, to, yes, a bit. Yes, but not completely. And mostly I'm just stupid. You know, if I get in an argument with my wife and this happens... We have a relatively fractious relationship, you know, although fundamentally it's peaceful because we sort things out, but she'll sometimes, well, and me too, with her, I'll think, what, she's trying to hurt my feelings, maybe maybe that's a way of thinking about it, it's like, or I'm trying to hurt her feelings, or I'm not paying attention properly. It's like, no, I'm just too stupid to know what you want. And we've really sort of figured this you out. you know what's
2: really strange? One of my first questions were, were good, was going to be something about like, why the fuck are women such hard bloody work? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, they're, they're hard work. I
1: can, te- I can tell you why to some degree. Tell me, tell well, me women, I don't
2: know what the fuck they want at this women
1: point. Women on average uh, experience more negative emotion than men. So really? 75% of divorces are initiated by women, and women are more unhappy than men. And so they're more prone to depression and they're more prone to anxiety disorders. They're more prone to suicide attempts, although men commit suicide more often because they use guns, because men tend to be more
2: violent even towards
1: themselves. And men, men, men
2: are very decisive, on not Yeah, <laughs> yeah that well right? that's, yes. But in yeah. nature, once their minds made yeah, up. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 so, yes. Yeah.
1: So women are higher negative emotion. Mm. And, and so why? Well, it kicks in at puberty. And so why would women become more sensitive to threat at puberty? Well, let's figure it out. It's pretty straightforward. They're at a physical disadvantage because mm-hmm. boys and girls can wrestle and fight but men and women can't mm-hmm. so men are way stronger especially in the upper body and so women hit men more than the reverse mm-hmm. by a lot Yeah. so you might say well are women or men more violent well if it's just blows struck women win but if it's blows that land yeah right that okay. leave
2: damage yeah right exactly yeah. and
1: the women know that so they know they can give you a cuff and it's like well
2: whatever I don't, and, so, and, 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 so, so women, wait there's two sorry. more things
1: okay so women get comparatively weaker physically, so mm-hmm. the world's more dangerous, okay? Then they're more vulnerable sexually, mm-hmm. right? Then they have to take care of infants. Mm-hmm. So they're tilted towards more threat detection. And so that makes them, it makes them maybe sub optimally happy when
2: you think about them as individuals. Because they're always aware of all of these threats. threats. So it, it's, yep. it's hard for them to switch off. Whereas yeah. when I walk down <clears> the street, I'm not worried in the same way. Of course, of course. This has been really something and I'd love to have you back on next time you're in London. Uh, Truly uh, an individual in the world and uh, someone who's bringing interesting things. So how would you like to be remembered?
1: I'd like to be remembered as alive. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah. Um, People have asked me that before. I mean, I'd I'd like to be remembered, I suppose, as someone who was encouraging because that's what I think primarily I'm doing is mm-hmm. encouraging people it's like yeah yeah you're full of problems and you're massive snakes and all that and, but fundam- not fundamentally you're the thing that can handle snakes fundamentally mm-hmm. so if you would be willing to and so and I really I, not only do I believe that in some sense I, I know it's true mm-hmm. I know it's true so I'm trying to tell people that it's like yeah mm-hmm. you're a sad case but, uh, <laughs> but there's a hell of a lot more to you than you think like way more. Enough to cope with the trouble of the world inside you. There is enough to cope with the trouble of the world. Mm-hmm. And you, if you had enough courage, you could let that out. Enough courage and faith, you could, you could let that out. Mm-hmm. And everything would be better in, because of it. Really, really. And so that's a, good, that's a good story. And it's also true. And so I'm trying to tell that story.
2: So keep shining your light on, uh, on the snakes I, I do like that uh, that was Jordan Peterson on the True Geordie podcast uh, obviously they can go and find out where you're going to be or is there a website that you prefer yeah to, well
1: they can go to jordanbpeterson.com mm-hmm. and my tour schedule there list yeah. of recommended books um, so if you want to enlighten yourself on the intellectual side I have 100 books there mm-hmm. if you spent three years reading them you'd be a much sharper uh, knife in the drawer let's say okay. and uh, yeah so people are welcome to do that I have a couple of online programs at Mm -hmm. selfauthoring.com and understandmyself.com. And the latter is a personality test Mm -hmm. that'll outline your strengths and weaknesses very accurately. And if you do that with your partner, you get a report that tells you where you're compatible and where you're not and why.
0: Or your business partner, Mm -hmm.
1: maybe. Or your business partner, absolutely. We should do that. we're We're gonna modify the site so that Fathers and sons can do it and mothers and daughters mm-hmm. and business partners. You should
2: make a dating app because... Yeah, we thought about that honestly, too. Honestly, they're not very good. So you yeah, just get I know. I mean, on there.
1: Well, it'd be nice to be reasonably matched temperamentally with your potential partner. Right? You be,
0: I mean, just be a series of dates of guys talking to women about what Carl Jung
1: said though. Sure.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, that yeah, was yeah. Uh, Jordan Peterson yeah. on True Journey Podcast. Big thank you. Uh, appreciate it. And we'll see hey, you on the next one. Nice to meet you guys. Thank thanks nice for the you. invitation.
1: And thank yeah, thank thanks you. to all you who are listening and watching as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. much appreciated.